Talks from the National Archives. This talk, presented by Sean Cunningham, is called Dependence, Intolerance and Expulsion, the story of England's medieval Jewish communities. It was recorded on Friday the 24th of January 2020 for the National Archives, Q. Hello everybody, my name's Ewan Roger, I'm one of the principal record specialists in the medieval team and I have the pleasure today of introducing uh, our talk, Dependence, Intolerance and Expulsion, a story of England's medieval Jewish communities, from Sean Cunningham. Sean is the head of the medieval team here and has worked here in his own words for a very long time. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has published widely on late medieval and early Tudor politics and government. Sean will be digging into some of our earliest collections to explore the story of England's medieval Jewish communities. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to Sean. Thank you very much. I was wondering why we are going to mark what happens in the 20th century by looking back to the 13th century. And it's really just to show what a long story this is and how some things which have happened 800 years ago are still relevant in the way that communities interact and the way people behave towards each other. So this talk is really just to show how our records here at the National Archives highlight what happened mainly in the 13th century to the Jewish community and their relationships with the Crown and with the Christian community in England and how that changed to the point when the Jewish community were expelled at the end of 1290. So to start with, we're going to go right back to the 12th century so there's no evidence that there was any widespread Jewish population before the Norman Conquest. And we think William the Conqueror brought people from Rouen in Normandy with him, um, mainly for their financial skills. And that's reflected in some of the French names of the Jewish community that we see in the first records that survive in the 12th and 13th century. This financial connection to the crown was the basis for the, the Jews' role in England, really, during the medieval period. And it's codified in this grant um, of liberties from Henry I, who reigned from 1100 to 1135. And this is a copy made a bit later when those liberties were renewed by King John. So Jews had the right to acquit themselves at law if they could find another Jew or a one Christian to testify as witnesses or on an oath sworn on the Torah. Cases involving Jews could only be heard in the king's courts or those of constables of castles where communities already established. And the community of Jews were royal chattels so they had the status of the king's property. That meant they could travel exempt from customs and tolls around the country, and that their oaths were important because they were so closely linked to the king. But that did have a, a problem later on as that relationship began to unravel. So this charter, when it was renewed, cost 4,000 marks, which was about 2,500 pounds, which is a huge amount of money. But this confirms, for the whole of the country, what Henry I had granted to the Jews of London, which is really the only community at the time when it was originally granted in the 1100s. So that's the starting point for the medieval relationship between the Jewish community and the crown. So the Crusades and other events around Europe sort of heightened this idea of religious difference. But in England, the Jews worked closely with the crown, and it was Josker of Gloucester, for example, who financed the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland in 1170, and the Jewish communities were growing by that date beyond London. So French Jews exiled by Philip Augustus um, came to England. And we can see in the career of people like Aaron of Lincoln, who died in 1186, 
This builds the myth of the, the Jewish financier and the super rich person, although he was super rich, but actually working with the king very closely to build really the infrastructure that medieval kings wanted, which was to use the money to do the politics and the invading and the other things they wanted to do. So Aaron was an exceptional financier, really st stood out as a, a figure in this period, um, and taxation that he contributed, say, towards the the Saladin tithe in 1186, and to Richard I's ransom a bit later, really showed how the crown could see the wealth that the Jews were developing and tap it at will. But in this period, there were rising tensions. So in the six months after the killing of some London Jews at Richard I's coronation in September 1189, we have the massacre at York Castle in March 1190. That's on the top right there. The Jews of Lincoln also fled to their castle to escape the mob, and they survived. Uh, the York attack was led by Richard de Malbis, a man heavily in debt to Aaron of Lincoln's family. So you can see already the idea of Christian debt to the Jewish community is causing tension at the end of the 12th century. Richard I was more concerned about the loss of income as protector of the Jews and by their treatment generally in England's towns. And that can be seen in the heavy contributions they made to royal taxes for his own ransom and to tallages in general. So records of the Jewish financial dealings were to be kept in chests after an ordinance of the jury was passed in 1194, and this is where we begin to see the records that we have in our collection here. As these debts were recorded, those records have survived in various forms to come into the Crown's collection later on. And this idea of recording things is the first step towards an exchequer of the Jews, which is a formal court to scrutinise Jewish financial dealings and to deal with legal disputes and business between them. And we've got those records as well, with a lot of which have been published and taxated. But the, um, the king would receive a 10% charge of all cases going before the Exchequer of the Jews. So again, there was a financial dimension to granting these liberties. So as heard already, King John extended Henry II's liberties to all Jews in England and appointed a new Jewish leader, or presbyter, Jacob of London in 1200. But by this stage, there's much pressure from Pope Innocent III on European leaders to ban usurious practices, so lending money at interest, and to persecute the Jews for their role in Christ's crucifixion. So the Pope is really pushing this. And that would have undermined how the English crown worked with the Jewish communities, especially that, with that financial basis. So John largely ignored these demands. And when he granted his liberties, it was to all the Jews of England, so he's still considering the Jewish community as a whole. And during his reign, his dispute with the Pope, the Magna Carta issues, loss of his Norman lands in 1205, makes this relationship even more complicated because King John needs money desperately, and he asks the Jews for almost 66,000 marks during his reign by 1210, which is about 44,000 pounds, a huge amount of money. But they're still tied up in his political struggles and with nobles and with the Pope. So it's a confused and, and tense relationship with this pressure for money really driving how the Crown thinks about its relationship with the Jews. That progresses a little further um, until the 1253 Statute of Jury, which again is, is using the law to establish a distinct set of relationships. It's responding again to this growing antagonism around Europe towards the Jewish community. Henry's under a bit of pressure to implement the canons of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, which is 
what introduces the idea of Jews having to wear badges uh, of identification. And this act in 1253 had lots of other measures which are restrictive. So it demands that no new synagogues would be built. Jews were to pay duty to their local churches. Jews and Christians were to live together but live segregated lives and not to commune. So they're almost working around each other in the same communities. Jews were to be concentrated in large established communities and not be established in new places. Meant this meant that many smaller communities had to congregate and move to the larger towns like Gloucester, York, Oxford, Lincoln, Winchester, Norwich, and, and London, which was the original site of the main Jewish settlement. Justices of the Jews were meant to uphold these rules as well, but it's unclear how rigorous these were managed because the example of Mirabelle of Gloucester there, she was able to negotiate with William Marshall to honor King John's grant of the quittances of her husband debts, husband's debts to her. So she was able to secure financial benefits despite this new act in 1253. A lot of the debts to the Jews were targeted during the Barons' War since the removal of evidence of Christian debt to the Jews reduced the king's income, weakened his ability to fight his own rebels. And the Barons' leader, Simon de Montfort, annulled the debts to Jews during his period of governmental control in 1264. So the loss of records was important, and this is something that happens in the Peasants' Revolt as well in 1381, where financial records and records of taxation contributions are destroyed so people don't know the value of people's wealth and income. So there's, there's an element of that in destroying the evidence for how people pay their taxes. And the Crown is beginning to turn towards foreign merchants and Italian merchants for major loans, so the Jews suddenly become treated much less like financial partners and more like that original status of chattels of the crown, especially in the way that they're taxed. And here's a, a nice example of how that statute is used. A, a little later on in the 13th century, this is a statute book for um, one of the justices in the north, so it might have been linked to the, the process of expelling the Jews from York, but Hugh de Cressingham is a justice who has statutes of Jewry copied into his own statute book, so he knows exactly what he's implementing and enforcing. I should say most of these records will be in the document display, so you can take photos of them as well. So as I mentioned already, the Exchequer of the Jews is a court set up by Richard I to administer the collection of taxes, to register loans and other financial dealings, and it also becomes a, a court, a li literally a legal body, that settles disputes between people involved in commercial relationships between the Jewish community and business dealings with Christians. The cases start in 1219, run to 1281, and the Jewish Historical Society has published transcriptions of them. The cases heard on this first membrane of the first record include William of Hericlan's complaint that the Jews of London had eject ejected him from land in the suburbs, a case of Copan of Oxford claiming money and interest and a man called Thomas de Mare, who produced a, a contract written in he Hebrew that he couldn't read, but he thought this was evidence of his title to property, so he wanted the court to read it for him. Actually, the land that John of Heraclin was complaining about ended up being on the site of the House of Converts, which became the public record office in Chancery Lane. So there's a link from this very early record right through to now, really, with how we manage the records on behalf of the Crown. Some other examples of how debts were recorded once these statutes were enforced. Here we've got Abraham of Berkhamsted, one of many names on this roll, basically a list of his debts and, and bonds. So he is a man who's used by the crown as a source for tax revenue 
but he's also charged to assess the wealth of other Jewish members of his community, especially for the tax of 10,000 marks that was levied in 1250. And this kind of role brings jealousy and allegations of, I guess, practices which a lot of Christians felt needed to be highlighted. So he's accused of defacing images of the Virgin Mary and of murdering his wife when she refused to help him do that. Uh, this is completely baseless. Like many of the allegations of ritual kidnapping and, and murder that are brought up as a way of fracturing and building tension between communities, Abraham was arrested. When this was found to be a false claim, he was still fined before he could be released. So the, the crown is finding every which way to, to make money out of these relationships. And later on, he's involved in a lot of the, the coin clipping allegations and, and trials simply because there's not much else left for him to do. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. So earlier on in the 13th century, there's, there's fairly good evidence of, of good relationships, certainly on the business side of things between Jews and Christians, mainly around London, because that's where most of our records evidence have come from for this type of activity. And we've got three or four good examples next door with the Christian charter and then the Jewish star or contract written in Hebrew as well. I'll just show you some of those photos of these down. This is one without the, um, the surviving Jewish text, but it's um, a grant for land in London. It's a kind of early form of mortgage, so it's a, a lease presented, a grant presented as a lease, but it's really loaning against the value of property. And this allows debtors to keep possession of land until debts are cleared. So there's lots of maneuvering going on behind this, which is allowing people to borrow money at interest, but access to finance in a way that perhaps they couldn't have done because Christians weren't permitted to lend in that way. So the, the financial role of the Jewish community in London and the merchants who are speculating like this and getting wealthy but having then the wealth to lend to people, that's really important for driving innovation in the land market and credit and exchanges and really how these link to the Italian merchant banks as well. Um, it's really in this early part of the 13th century that this is developing, developing very quickly and it's, um, it's very interesting that it's, it's coming out of this Jewish-Christian business relationship. This is a release for house in, in Cheapside. It's on the, the site of the Tilt Yard near Smithfield. And this is again contract, but at the bottom you can see you've got the, the Hebrew text written onto it. This is the star of Bonneville acknowledging the contract for a house in the Jewry. And then here, here we've got it as a separate document. Um, this is for three acres of land, again in parts of London, and it's the star of Aaron releasing the land to the prior of the Holy Trinity and quitting his rights, as it says, from the creation of the world to the end thereof. So this idea of a, a star or, or a contract in Hebrew is um, any document really that involves quick claims or releases of rights over debts. And I think the merchants are probably writing their own in Hebrew because it's obviously such a specialised um, skill, whereas Christian merchants would get a, a notary or a, scri a scribe to write theirs. So you can see also sort of self-sufficiency in the way business dealings were done within the Jewish community. But as profits rise, so does taxation. And we've got many examples of half tally sticks showing that debts being acquitted. And these are the things that were burned in the 18, 1834 to burn down the Houses of Parliament. Um, we've still got a few surviving examples. But as profits increase, so does taxation. 
and one of the, the main collections we have here are the, the lists of Jewish contributors to the talages in the 13th century. So Henry III is increasing the frequency of taxation in the search for extra cash. Between 1230 and 1272, the wealthy Jewish community paid over 320,000 marks to the king's coffers. The biggest tax was probably the, the tax of 20,000 marks, and that was assessed on an assembly of all the Jews of Worcester, for example, at Worcester um, in 1241. And six representatives were sent from other large communities to this, something which is almost like a parliament, to give consent to this tax. And Aaron of York, one of the main financiers, pays 175 pounds on his own to this collection. And Aaron is responsible for contributing to those big building projects at the time in Henry III's reign, like Westminster Abbey, the Tower of London, and the Five Sisters window in York Minster. So he serves as Arch-Presbyter of the Jews from 1236 to 43, and when he dies in 1268, his death duties on his estates take another 19 years to sort out. And Henry III had really milked his lands and his profits as much as he could. So even though Aaron has this high status, he's still being targeted for his wealth all the way through his life and even after death. And as that wealth increases and the crown is is using that as a pot from which to draw. You can see evidence of the suspicion spreading out into the wider community. And we have this example. This is the Essex air roll for the forest lands in Essex in 1277. And it's, um, it's a very small picture on this case of a gang concerned with killing deer in the King's Forest. But it's a mixed gang of Christians and Jews. And the Jewish boys called Isaac and Samuel are the sons of this man called Aaron, and Aaron of Colchester. But you can see in the document is called Aaron, son of the devil, right at the top there. And then this is also the earliest representation of the tabula badge that the Jews were forced to wear after the second statute of Jewry in 1275 uh, in the shape of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So that'd be made of yellow taffeta, and part of the statute was that had to be worn on the outer garments at all times, on pain of a fine or something worse. So this is what Aaron probably did look like, because I'm sure he came into court when his sons were on trial. And we'll also see this one later on. This is quite a famous image on, again, a tax record of debts from various taxes um, that hadn't been collected. And this one is written at the top of the roll for Norfolk, and it was probably written in or drawn in 1233. But it concerns, it's kind of a little derogatory picture of what's happening in Norwich at the time. So at the top, you've got a three-faced man, Isaac Phil Jernet, who is running the dock. He's a really major moneylender in Norwich, and he has lots of property. And he, again, he's financing the crown through loans. But Isaac is employing other Jews to collect his debts, chiefly a man called Mosse Mocha and his wife, Abigail, and they're pictured in the middle, either side of the devil, who's touching them on the nose, which is a really sort of derogatory symbol drawn by this exchequer clerk in London, <coughs> who probably never been to Norwich. But it kind of sums up what he thinks is going on out in the world where Christians and Jews are interacting. So that's, um, that's been used many times as an example of the medieval mentality that's emerging during Henry III's reign as this, this financial pressure and then this social pressure is being put into effect. And following on from that, we actually get lots of legal evidence of these ritual kidnappings and alleged murders. There's probably only about 14 of them alleged from the mid-12th century, but they've become 
notorious and well-known simply because people like Matthew Paris, the St. Albans chronicler, picks up on the stories and elaborates and reinterprets and offers spurious new evidence which really expands the story and makes it salacious. So in terms of a percentage of evidence of interactions, it's tiny, yet it still rings through the ages as examples of how the tension and, and uh, unease was existing in the 12th and 13th centuries. So this one is um, a boy who was five-year-old called Odart, the son of Master Benedict, who was allegedly seized by the Jews of Norwich to be brought up in their faith. And this incident fuels anti-Semitism in response. The trial has to be held in London, and the king actually sits in this trial as well. And four people are hanged, and another man fled England and was outlawed. Um, this document is really an inquest into the property held by the man who fled, and that property was granted to the king. So the allegation isn't really explored in this. Uh, it is a bit more in this next one, which is from Winchester. Again, this is from an air roll, so it's a visitation of the central justices out to the counties to hear what cases have been stored up since they last arrived. And it's, it's, it's been heard a couple of years after it was alleged to have happened. And it's an infant found strangled in the cemetery of St. Swithin's Priory at Winchester. The boy's nurse had allegedly sold him to Abraham Pinch, a Jew of Winchester, who then ritually killed him. The mother of the child sought sanctuary. She then confessed to the killing herself and then abjured the realm, indicating the circumstances of the death. Despite this fact, the jury at Hampshire Air of 1235 swore that she'd been mentally ill at the time of the death and that she knew nothing of what had happened. But even... Even that didn't allow Abraham to, um, to sort of get off this injustice that had been applied to him. And nobody seems troubled at all about the fact that he'd been accused completely falsely. I suppose the most famous one is Little St. Hugh of Lincoln. And this is important because it's the point where the king endorses these allegations by effectively saying, I believe this. So this is in 1255. And this is really just a writ to the sheriff telling him to take some action to start the process. So again, we know a lot of the facts from Matthew Paris rather than from the official record, but you can match the two things up to see roughly where the, the, the thread of truth follows, if it follows at all. So there's been lots of work on this particular case recently. Little Hugh was found in a well in Lincoln in the summer of 1255, the day after a Jewish wedding, and many Jews had traveled there for this ceremony. He's venerated quite quickly because allegedly his blood cures the blindness of a woman who was there, and the citizens seize the nearest person they can find, who's a Jew called Copan. He's living, living nearby. The king gets to Lincoln on the 3rd of October, and his steward of his household, a very senior man, John of Lexington, actually tortures Copan until he confesses to the killing. So Henry III orders his hanging, and over 100 other people were sent to London for trial. Um, this is very serious because it demonstrates that Henry is now involved in this process of authorising reactions to these allegations and really endorsing the truth of them. And Hen uh, Hughes' miracles then ex extend um, and his story is captivated in ballads and again, as I said, by Matthew Paris. And Henry III is, is very interested personally in converting Jews to Christianity as well. So you can see why he would have been involved in this case because it's, it's basically something everyone is talking about. So this idea of conversion forces or prompts him to set up a bit earlier in, in the early 1230s the House of Converts, which is on Chancery Lane, 
and that site turns into the, um, the Rolls Chapel eventually and after the 1850s, the old public record office. So the purpose of this house was to host those Jews who'd converted to Christianity, both men and women, and their daily life was run on monastic practice and they were treated as inmates. They had a weekly allowance of 10 pence for men, eight pence for women. They're overseen by a priest to keep them true to their new faith of Christianity, uh, who was probably a convert as well. It remains in use throughout the Middle Ages and well into the 18th century. Before the mid-13th century, the numbers are very small, but between 1240 and 1260, there's perhaps around 300 converts, um, which is a tiny population, and then a small number of them would have been living in this domus. And all of their goods would have been forfeited to the crown at conversion, so really they're living a pretty meagre and sparse life, but it's an example of the king's power to, to force or to encourage conversion. And part of that is Edward I's new statute really enforces all of these developments and addresses all the issues that have been emerging throughout the 13th century. In October 1275, the Westminster Parliament passes this new statute. And this really underlines the earlier regulations. So no Jew is allowed to lend money at interest on land or on rent. No interest is to accumulate on loans. Only half of the land of a Christian could be confiscated if they didn't repay their debts. No Jew could acquit a Christian of a debt without royal consent. Every Jew had to wear this, this distinguishing badge or mark. All Jews over 12 years of age have to pay an annual tax of three pence. And most importantly, they may, may live by lawful trade and labor only. So this act takes away what the, the purpose of the Jewish financial community had been for most of the century, which is to lend money at interest. So they can't do this anymore. They have to compete in the labor market with everybody else to earn their living. And this is a very wide-ranging and detailed piece of legislation which really boxes in the Jewish community and chops off all of these opportunities they've had previously in the century. It's not intended to destroy the community, but it effectively it spells their ruin because it stops them doing their, their primary purpose, primary cause, which had been accepted and as we've seen in those earlier contracts, it's been used quite effectively by both sets of the communities in London and around the country. So in response to this, some Jews took to coin clipping, which is literally shaving bits of silver off the king's coins uh, to, to basically earn a livelihood. And this again, a couple of years after this statute, starts a new investigation into offences around coinage. There's lots of arrests in 1278, and this is another opportunity to enforce the harsh measures around dress and conversion. That's just an example from this parliament of, of Edward in Magistry, giving you some idea of how no, this is an, an important and powerful piece of legislation. So here's a couple of his coins, and you can see how the, the beveled edge has been trimmed away, and that's really what these coin-clipping allegations were. And it's obviously an illegal practice to deface the king's coin, um, reducing its value because these had a literal silver weight, so they were minted from bits of silver. So the judges had already been investigating this before the statute of jury in 1275, but this is sped up in 1276, and a new effort is made in response to the act, and they send undercover agents out into the community. A lot of Jewish converts and almost um, informers are really laying open this practice to the king, 
There's some Christians arrested, but really this is an attack on Jewish practices. And trials start in 1279 with over 600 Jews in London imprisoned and uh, nearly 270 executed in London and Middlesex. And only three Christians were hung for these offences and many more released after paying fines. So this is really quite um, devastating to the Jewish community and it's really the last step in the preparations or the, the changes in thinking to allow the idea of an expulsion to enter into the, the thoughts and actions of the political elite who were thinking about this around the king, his councillors, his leading barons. So quite soon after that we begin to see the chronology of the expulsion and we can, we can see very many consequences and, and, and causes for how we got to this point, and some of them are, are summarised already, but I'll, I'll, I'll go over them again. So in the longer term, this idea of heavy taxation during Henry III's reign had really eroded the financial base of the Jewish community. Certainly those wealthy merchants had been taxed and taxed again till they really weren't wealthy at all. So receipts had fallen from maybe £4,000 a year down to 900 in 1278, so this sends the message that the Jewish community is no longer indispensable to the crown for its finances. And the population has been dwindling in, in parallel to that. So having been quite healthy in the mid-century, these statutes send the message that you know, this community is not welcome here. So people are moving out of England and there's probably only a few thousand people left at the end of the 1280s when this process begins. The coin clipping campaign because it falls disproportionately on the Jewish community and Jewish merchants, really hammers home this message as well. And in parallel is the official hardline tone of the church. Uh, it's becoming more hostile. And really the rise of mendicant orders like the Dominicans in the 1280s is really creating a different balance for a theological pressure on the king to do something about people who aren't Christians in his own realm. So there's several other examples of expulsions at the same time. The French kings had removed the Jews from their own private lands in the end of the 12th century. Simon de Montfort had expelled the Jews from Leicester in 1231. Southampton, Brittany, Bridge North, all through the 1270s. And that brings us sort of up into the very short-term consequences, which might be this tax in 1287 brings in far less money than they thought, and they suddenly realise this community is not what we thought it was or isn't as it was in the past really the costs of actually investigating the tax bring in are, are more expensive than what they bring in in, in re receipts. The rise of the Italians is really filling some of this void in terms of financing the crown. And there's no longer any people around the king who are really speaking up for the Jewish community. A lot of the, um, the king's brothers and the royal and powerful magnates have their own connections with the Jewish community and they are not really supporting them to the king, not really being influential on their behalf. So the kind of level of support has disappeared as well. On the other hand, uh, because the Jewish community is under such a lot of pressure, they're much less willing to accommodate the Christian community, to, to give up any more of their rights and practices, so that just makes them seem obstinate and increases the idea that they're trying to be separate. Uh, in 1289, Edward comes back from Gascony, where he's had a pretty terrible campaign, heavily in debt, and he's ordered the expulsion of the Jews from his Gascon lands as Duke of, Duke of Guienne. So he's got a personal precedent at the end of the 1280s. So that means that once this new grant of taxation is, is proposed to replace some of these war costs, the idea of expelling the Jews as a, an offset for the grant of that taxation 
is kind of laid on the table. So at that point, it becomes a real possibility. And this is where we begin to see the machinery of government demonstrating how this was all put together very quickly. So we've got an awful lot of the king's letters sent out to sheriffs, a lot of commissioners and licenses, things like safe conducts and rights for people to sell property before they're expelled, but they're basically given about four months from July to the end of October, and all Jews have to be out of the country by All Saints' Day, the 1st of November, 1290. So we've got some letters of safe conduct. You'll see on the roll next door this letter to the Sheriff of Gloucester to allow the Jews of Gloucester to depart without hindrance or violence. Obviously, didn't stop violence and hindrance happening. You've got Bonamy of York is in a privileged position, working closely with the king's brother, Richard of Cornwall, so he has a special license of a personal safe conduct, and other York merchants are given the license to sell their real estate before they actually leave, because basically they can move out of the country with what they can carry, with cash, with debts that are still owed, and with, with goods that they can, they can fit into bags. And there's another example at the Sank Ports. A lot of the Jews are heading towards France, so they go to the Sank Ports in Kent, and there's a proclamation made to the officers of the Sank Ports not to, um, not to overly charge the Jews for leaving the country. So they're, they're charged four pence a head for actually sailing out of England. So even that was a way of making money. So anyone who held property at this time to a Jew was to, ex was to uh, surrender it to the crown, and... On the 20th of December, after the Jews had left, Hugh of Kendall is appointed by the king to value and sell all the houses, all the rents and tenements and property formerly held by the Jews. So because this has all been recorded in these arca, these chests of agreements and bonds, and the exchequer is drawing in all this information, it can quite quickly compile these lists of which properties to go and get and to rank them in value and wealth so it's, the machinery is actually working in the king's favour because it's been accumulating this information through tax records for a century. So it's, um, it's partly why the efficiency of the government is, is able to, to manage this whole process and partly because the, the population it's moving is so small by this stage. But nevertheless, it is accomplished in four months. So after the Jews have been expelled... The chests have been seized with their documents and their contracts and their debts and their bonds. And the exchequer, again, is making these long lists. So this is the list for Devon, found in Exeter Castle. And there's about £9,000 worth of debt here, which has been passed to the king. And now it's the king's job to, um, to cash that in, to chase it down. He can claim the original value of the loans, but not the interest that would have been charged. But Edward begins to do this quite quickly. And it's estimated that by the end of 1291, some £20,000 had been collected from former Jewish properties in, in up to 16 towns around the country. So Edward is making about 85 separate grants disposing of this property. In Oxford alone, this is from 113 named Jewish men, and that property seized is, is worth well over £100 to the king. So it brings in a lot of money quite quickly, but obviously there's no more Jewish population to continue this money flow coming in. So it does mean that really this is a, a cut-off source of income. And here things like the outstanding debts that were chased down for several years. So in this list for Lincoln, Suffolk and Somerset, 
here at the bottom, there's an entry for Bridlington Priory, which apparently owed Bonamy of York £300, but the Crown doesn't actually find out about it for four years because it takes that long to get through the records to that point. And the debt is still standing in 1327 when Edward III basically gives it up as a bad debt that he'll never recover. So the kings are still investigating these Jewish debts 40, 45 years after they've removed the Jews from the country. So pretty ruthless in 1290, pretty ruthless subsequently. So where did the Jewish population go? Most of the, the Jewish people go to France, but in February 1291, Philip IV expels the Jews from France. A few remain, including Bonamy of York, who's able to do a deal with King Philip to re resume his status for payments of heavy taxes in France. Some English Jews go to other parts of Britain. Scotland is still a separate country at this stage. They go to the Mediterranean, some go to Egypt. But um, they're basically hounded around Europe because rulers are following the Pope's lead and pushing Jewish populations out of all these territories. So after 1290, there, sh there should be no practicing Jews left in England. But traces of the community survive in place names like the Old Jewry in London. And there's also a physical reminder in the House of Converts. And this is a, a document which basically is a petition from the inhabitants of the Domus Conversorum in 1308. They're asking Edward II, the new king, that he renews a grant of £202 per year, which Edward I, his father, had given for their welfare. So that's that daily payment as an annual sum for the upkeep of the members of the House of Converts. And Edward II employs Roger de Henham and John de Sandal to literally go into the Domus and interview the inhabitants. And we get some little snippets from these interviews about when people arrived there, what age they were, where they'd come from. On the 1st of December, 1308, we can see 17 men and 17 women had died since the expulsion in the Domus themselves, and there were 23 men and 28 women still left who had been Jews before 1290, but had converted to Christianity to live in the Domus and not have to flee the realm. And the last surviving person, we think, certainly on record, from the pre-expulsion community was Clarice of Exeter, who was the daughter of Jacob Copan. And she was admitted as a child in 1280 into the Domus. In the early 14th century, she moves to Exeter, marries and has a family, but then she returns with two of her children in 1330. And when she dies in 1336, she's the last living link to the community that had existed in England before 1290. So that gives you a kind of stark message about how quickly things were changed for the Jewish community, how they'd had this stable relationship with the king, but the very nature of the, the wealth that the king wanted kind of undermined their position. And that closeness to the crown allowed the king to, to tap into that wealth, and then that bred the kind of resentment which came up in those allegations of, of ritualized ceremonies, and also the defamatory cartoons that we see, and all of that commentary and other chroniclers which you'll see in, in other archives and in print. But our records do show a, a very good cross-section of how this community arrived, thrived, and then was quite ruthlessly cut down by the Crown. Thank you very much.
This talk is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence. Visit our website to discover more talks and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for news and updates from the National Archives.